Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with the UBS Chief Investment Office as well as our industry asset manager partners for a discussion on the markets as well as a debate on timely macro developments, outlooks, as well as asset allocation views. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Jason Trejo, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Henry McVeigh of KKR. And just some quick background on Henry. Henry is the head of the Global Macro and Asset Allocation Team, while also serves as Chief Investment Officer for KKR's Balance Sheet, oversees firm-wide market risk, and co-heads KKR's Strategic Partnership Initiative. So Jason, Henry, it's great to be with you both on the podcast today. Looking forward to hearing your current thinking and to diving into some of these timely topics with you both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely. It's great to be with you both today, and thank you again for joining us. So, Henry and Jason, I know you've both, in some of your publications, uh, some of the key differences in both the monetary and fiscal responses to the global financial crisis, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic, which at this point we're roughly a year into. Both of these events, they have been viewed as unprecedented. So, Henry, from your vantage point, can you walk us through some of the key differences of these events, and maybe even to take it a step further, Henry, with the differences in mind, how my portfolio managers want to consider adjusting their approach from what might have worked well during the prior recovery period? So I'd, I'd list a couple of things. One is this is the first uh, recession that we ever had in the United States where disposable income actually went up, not down. Um, and so that's a big deal. That comes with, we estimate, about $2 trillion of incremental savings that is now ready to go into the economy. And that's that's uh, includes, um, that's actually before the $1.9 trillion uh, package that we just got. The second is, um, there was, there's no bank deleveraging. The banks were 30 times levered in 2009 and had to bring that down. Today they're 10 times. So, so credit should be able to flow better. Uh, I think the third thing is the cyclical parts, both autos and housing are doing well. That's clearly was not the case typically in a, in a recession and the recovery. It takes time to, to restoke those, um, those industries. And now they're actually booming. And I think the final thing is, look, if you look at the, the GFC, China kind of put the world on its back in terms of, um, stimulus. This time it's been the U.S. I mean, we estimate the U.S. is about, 40% of, um, of the global stimulus, uh, which is a huge number. We think it's about, you know, almost 30 trillion. So what, what's that mean for investing? Look, it's, it's, it's very different. Last time, last recovery, you just got paid for buying secular growth nonstop. Uh, every time there was an acceleration, you should pay that and, and keep buying secular compounders. We're still constructive on that part of the market, but we've got more of a cyclical bias. Um, you know, I'll talk a lot. We, we traffic mostly in the private side, so we're buying companies or credits. So, and and that's where we're spending our time. So industrials, things with pricing power, uh, infrastructure, where we feel like we've got pricing power and can pass uh, costs through. And ultimately, we, we think right now we're going to see a, a cyclical rebound across many of the services industries. So it, it's a different playbook. Um, you know, we've been pretty adamant about that. We think that we're, uh, you know, maybe we're at halftime on that recovery, but we're certainly not uh, anywhere further than that. Clearly some distinct differences as you outlined for us, Henry. Uh, Jason, also want to get your take here. So I'd, I'd follow up with the, you know, one of the other big differences today versus the, the post-GFC period is on the policy front. The way in which monetary policy and fiscal policy both reacted to the pandemic was both bigger in scope 
size and, and particularly the speed of just how quickly, for example, last March, the Fed ended up cutting interest rates, expanding its balance sheet, putting in place a number of programs, which you know, back in 2008 took them you know, many months to do. Same thing on the fiscal side. With the latest deal passed, we're in the neighborhood of $6 trillion in total cumulative fiscal spending in response to this pandemic. Uh, during the GFC, that you know, the stimulus package was around you know, $750 billion, so, so much bigger scope. But there's also, I think, an important thing that I think matters going forward and that there's almost been a, a regime change in terms of how policy is being conducted. Uh, you know, the Fed has you know, changed its approach to average inflation targeting. Uh, you know, Jay Powell certainly yesterday kind of reiterated something they've been saying for a while, which is implicitly they want to run the economy hot. Um, they're willing to let inflation get above 2%. They're very much focused on maximum employment, you know, so not just you know getting to you know kind of a low employment rate, but a very broad, diverse perspective of how they think about employment. Uh, it's almost more important to them than seems uh, the focus on inflation. Uh, also, they've shifted to trying to maybe forecast inflation and then hike rates in anticipation to now being we're going to react to higher inflation, and that's I think you know, Powell reiterated many times yesterday in this press conference that approach. At the same time, you know, on fiscal. The mindset post-financial crisis was this is a problem of too much debt. We need to have more fiscal austerity. Uh, we need to get debt under control. That was sort of the mindset then. Uh, as we fast forward a decade, you know, whether it's you know politicians, policymakers, economists, I think they've become much more uh, comfortable running large deficits, you know, using fiscal policy as, a, as an active tool, less concerned about the consequences of higher debt, at least in the near term, whether it causes higher rates, inflation. When you combine these two factors, it's almost as if we pivoted to like have much more emphasis on fiscal, run an economy that could be harder, higher inflation. I think, again, what does it mean for investors? I think what Henry sort of said is, is kind of exactly right. The playbook of secular growth that worked very well for much of the past decade could still do well, but the areas that lagged, whether it's kind of more value stocks, some of the more cyclical sectors, commodities, you know, parts of international equity markets outside the U.S., this could be an environment where they outperform not just for a few months, but perhaps you know, a few years. And that's something where I think you know investors are still a little reluctant to embrace it, but that's that's the regime and the market environment setting up. Jason, the policy consideration you brought up, a very good point, and I do want to run with that for a few moments. Uh, Henry, get your take on what the path forward for monetary policy might look like, taking into account what we heard from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell yesterday, but also factoring in the prospects for perhaps inflation on the rise as we make our way through the balance of this year and beyond, as well as the implications of rising bond yields. We've been seeing more of that recently. Uh, what are your thoughts there in terms of how those factors might influence the path forward for monetary policy? Well, I think um, there are a couple of points I would make. One is, and Jason, I'm glad he harped on this, but the average inflation targeting is a totally different regime. And it's really focused. I think the Fed thinks the natural rate of employment is lower than it did in the past. Ultimately, I think they're targeting low-income workers and, and minority unemployment. So when we get to next year, they have an estimate of 3.5% inflation. Um, I think that they'll look beyond that headline and think about some of the areas, particularly the socioeconomic ones that haven't um, done as well, and make sure that they have that covered when they think about monetary policy. So that's one point. The second is that they get to separate um, the AIT uh, in short rates relative to what they're doing with the balance sheet. They're buying $120 billion per month. That's really related to the pandemic. And so I think as we go forward, the Fed will try to split those two. Uh, and so the third point is, is that tapering pr- will 
precede any rate increase. I think the market hasn't focused as much on on that. And so, to me, this is a very long term sequencing event. Uh, and and so, I, I think sometimes people want to mix and match. It's really important that you you have that framework. The second kind of big concept I would put out there is that and, you know when you heard people ask questions yesterday, the reporters is all about nominal interest rates. Real rates are where the story is, and real rates are actually still negative. They're minus sixty five basis points. And so that's still hugely accommodative. I mean, 2018 and 19, I think we were positive 100 basis points. So that gap is why rates can go up on a nominal basis and not restrict financial conditions. Typically, multiples on stocks contract kind of 10 to 15 percent during an earnings rebound at this point in the cycle. So this year we're looking for 26 percent growth and probably, you know, 15 percent multiple compression. But you still have a positive Return and so, what would change my view would be that something happened around um, happened around real rates really getting restrictive, and then the the final thing I think we should focus on is, as Jason said, there's a ton of liquidity in the system, and so it's how that money gets spent because we're actually going directly to the consumer, and whether it ultimately leads to some productivity gains or whether it's more just kind of like a growth bomb and then things subside. But ultimately, I'm in a camp. I think the Fed is structurally deflationist. And I think that when you think about things like demographics and technology, that will over time start to outweigh some of the cyclical burst in inflation. And we actually think inflation will be north of 3% here shortly uh, that we see in 22 and beyond. But that's where we're spending our time focusing. And so we view rising rates actually not as a negative, somewhat as a positive, and we think that it will be somewhat controlled in terms of how real rates actually come up. Well, you know, on, uh, on Monday, I published a blog titled, you know, we're all macroeconomists now because in some ways, you know, inflation and rates, which are closely tied together, are perhaps, you know, two of the biggest drivers for, obviously, for fixed income, for equities in terms of the overall level, but also rotations and, you know, areas in the markets that are very attractive. So there are, I think, central focus, I think, for anyone who's certainly doing asset allocation. On the rate side, you know, the direction of travel, is at least for the nominalists, it's higher over the next, you know, six to 12 months. I guess the question is, is how much and how soon? And some of that's going to depend, obviously, on how strong the recovery is and also the guidance that the Fed gives, especially regarding tapering. You know, if they give some sort of hint, perhaps even at the, you know, the June meeting of looking at taper starting next year, I think the markets will start to price that in. But taking a little bit, you know, kind of longer term perspective, you know, the really interesting questions and the harder ones to answer, unfortunately, are we know we're going to get an inflation surge in the second quarter just on a year over year basis. But just all this activity from the Fed trying to run the economy hot, all this additional spending, you know, this, this money that's in on the sidelines, does this lead to you know higher inflation in 2022, 2023? You know, yesterday with the Fed's you know kind of you know summary of economic projections, they're only looking at 2.1 percent inflation for for 2023, which is why they they assume you know no rate hike before 2024 at the at the earliest. This is an open question: is where does inflation go? Uh, you know, I think part of the reason why the Fed moved to average inflation targeting is an implicit acknowledgement that no one has a good forecasting model for inflation. I think the Fed tried and they they failed. So if we end up getting some higher inflation pressures, uh, you know, and I'm talking about inflation at two and a half, maybe three percent, uh, and we also critically, and this is a point Henry made, you know, on productivity growth. If all this investing and spending leads to higher productivity growth, then you get into like a very different sort of long-term kind of rate regime where, you know, your your neutral rates go higher for interest rates, for for growth rates, so, you know, your natural rate of employment falls. That's a very different macro environment. I think it's going to take time for us to kind of sort through what is cyclical stories versus secular. I think depending on your investment horizon, tax that you, you want to take advantage of it longer term. And I think this is actually interesting for Henry, given that they're looking at private markets and they're investing in many cases for multiple years. 
like how to sort of balance some of those ideas. But that to me is a kind of the critical question. Like what happens really beyond this year and, and kind of years down the, on the pipeline? I want to tie it in a bit to asset allocation, just given the backdrop that you've both provided coupled with your outlooks. Of course, investors have been hunting for yield for quite some time now. That remains very relevant today. What kind of role, Henry, do you see fixed income playing in a portfolio? Are there any subsectors within that look appealing? Anything that you're avoiding right now? So a couple of thoughts here i would say that rates i think both jason and i would agree rates are going to stay low so the yearn for yield continues so then you think about how do you get yield that you can get it in a safe way just in case the macro framework that we're putting forth doesn't work and so i think there are a couple of outcomes one is you can have bank loans where you have more flexibility around the 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 ability to reset the second which we're very active in in the private markets is um, is something that what we call collateral based cash flows. These are kind of uh, things like housing, you know, linked to housing or linked to aviation or linked to um, other forms of kind of fixed investment where you have some pricing power. Or the collateral could be worth more in a nominal GDP environment because replacement costs have gone up. And that could be you know, uh, certain parts of it could be everything from a warehouse to certain parts of real estate credit. And so we're very uh, focused on that. And then the third thing is we're creating more product where we have flexibility. We have a, a very big opportunistic credit um, portfolio. But from our standpoint, in, you know, at our, at our perch, I mean, we're trying to take advantage of the illiquidity premium in a market where rates are low. So as a percentage of the overall return, given where rates are, the value of the illiquidity premium has gone up. And so that's uh, what we're trying to do. And why is that? One is because rates are low. Two is you hopefully have longer term liabilities. And then ultimately three, you have more optionality around the, the exit. And so from the KKR vantage point, that's where we're leaning in. And that takes us across real estate, uh, certain parts of, I'd say, collateral-based cash flows and credit. And also, we've been really building out our infrastructure business, uh, maybe in some ways that are non-traditional, that, that also get to that that theme. Upfront cash flow, collateral to protect you on the downside, collateral to protect you on the upside. And ultimately, the replacement value is going to be an enhancer on top of that view. Henry, just a follow-up question, because you mentioned the liquidity premium going up. And I, and I read your Another Voice report, and I, I saw that in there when you mentioned it. And I'm just curious, like, what's kind of what you're thinking? Why the liquidity premium has gone up? Yeah, so I think that well, one is just the absolute. I mean, relative to the overall total return, mathematically it has because the, the rates have have gone down. So I think that that's point one. Point two is I think that when you had dislocation, a lot of banks kind of seized up to see whether you know what was going to happen, and that that typically creates um, excess uh, premium in the in the in liquidity premium on the that's on the the credit side. On the equity side, typically what happens in the rebound is the, the illiquidity premium actually shrinks and then it expands again because you have a beta rally. And then here it should expand again. And I think that will be uh, really tied into companies starting to create, you know, what we're seeing is a ton of corporate carve outs where they're repositioning their footprint. We're seeing a lot of stuff where companies want to go public, but before they do, they want to institutionalize. And the third thing is we're seeing a lot of companies that have done well in their local markets, but they actually want to expand globally and they want to partner to do that. And that's helped create value um, on the on the equity side, I tend to think of illiquidity premium by its nature being a little more static over time. So, changing how you think it kind of actually evolves over the course of the cycle. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think this is a big point. I think. Look, we've been in a point where our data would show 
you know, when you have market sell-offs, the, 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 the beta of the liquid market, and, and, and to your earlier comments, I still think we're going to have fairly robust markets because I think people are out of position. Everybody is long, large-cap growth. And if you think about it, like Amazon has a bigger market cap than I think the whole Russell 2000. So it doesn't take a lot of money coming back into that. But I think when you get into a more uh, less beta, then what, what makes a difference? Being in the right sectors, operational improvement, and the optionality of when you access ca- the capital markets. And so those are things that we focus on. The, the offset of that is obviously there's a lot of money coming into the private markets. But when you look at private capital as a percentage or dry powder as a percentage of the overall market cap, it's actually around the same percentage what it was about a decade ago. So just a, a couple of thoughts to add to what Henry said. I guess some of the things he mentioned in terms of like loans, we like you know, private kind of credit markets is an area that we've been liking. Uh, yeah, I think in general, higher dividend-paying stocks of certain types, I think are attractive. You know, this plays into, you know, financials have high dividends. I think this is an environment where financials can do well. Um, so things that are a little more cyclical value skew as a dividend-paying stock is an area to uh, you know, be attractive. And, and the final area in terms of trying to generate income right now, that's, I think it's attractive, and I know a number of our clients are looking at it, is using some form of structured institution or structured note where it takes advantage of volatility. Uh, you know, because even though we've had, we're at all-time highs for equity markets, a very strong least growth outlook going forward, you know, the volatility of the VIX index has still, you know, been about 20 until just, you know, a couple of days ago it fell below. So I've been able to sort of, you know, monetize some of that volatility through structured notes to capture that income. That's been, a, been an attractive opportunity and still remains that way. Just on the question of, you know, fixed income and a portfolio going forward, I think it's a, ch- a challenge. I think who does asset allocation. You know, where, where bonds, again, treasuries have been, you know, the perfect asset class for the past 20 years, because the returns have been comparable to equities as rates have fallen. You know, lower volatility and also negatively correlated. So you know, they're doing well when equities do poorly. Now, in an environment where it's, you know rates could continue to, to rise, especially at the back end of the curve, they're not going to give you the same kind of returns. I think some of the uncertainty about inflation and also sort of long-term maybe you know, debt sustainability, how much is being issued. Is just going to add a little bit more volatility, um, which isn't a reason to allocate to treasuries and safer fixed income, but I think its, it's properties are, are going to be, you know, not as appealing as, as they have been. So I think that also kind of pushes people into thinking through alternative markets, other you know, opportunities to kind of give you your bond-like kind of you know, aspects in your portfolio. Jason, I do want to follow up on one point you made in terms of asset price inflation. I recall a bit earlier in the year we had had a few conversations about concerns about bubbles perhaps forming in the market. Henry, to your point, I'm curious to get your thoughts on valuations. So a couple of thoughts. One is if you think about, you know, Jason made the point about the amount of liquidity coming in early, both fiscal and monetary, and I think he's spot on. Um, but when you think about that, it goes at first, it goes into the economy. And then if there's excess, it has to go in somewhere and it goes into financial assets. And right now, money supply growth is exceeding that of nominal GDP. And so that, that means money is going to come in the system and you do get, you know, speculative um, investments. And so you, you can see that, uh, you know, you've had a, a, a real run up in the number of SPACs that are getting filed. If you look at IPOs that are getting filed, filed, those type of things would be you know, trading volumes are up. So there's been a lot uh, of that. That, that, that is something to, to, to keep an, keep an eye on. I do think just bigger picture, you have to adjust for interest rates. So when we look at our internal metrics, every single thing looks generally expensive on a historical basis. But there's one factor that you have to adjust for. If you adjust for interest rates, you look at the earnings yield on stocks, which is just the inverse of the PE relative to rates, you're actually in about the 30 percentile. So there's a real barbell. Everything else would tell you expensive, but that would tell you cheap. And so we have tried to adjust for interest rates, but we've got to have a strong view 
on our interest rates. That's kind of point one. So for us, we think markets are actually, we, we actually think we're uh, still see some decent upside to value to the markets, particularly for active management and particularly around some of the things Jason said, moving away from just large cap growth to other parts, either internationally or, may, or maybe down the cap curve. Um, I would say we're hedging our, our bet a little bit because the reflation theme, it's hard to say that you, everybody has an answer. So, you know, as uh, on our balance sheet, we're, we're, we're doing more in our America's private equity, more in our Asia private equity, more in our Europe private equity. But we've also taken a big slug and we were doing more in infrastructure uh, and things back to this kind of collateral-based cash flow just to have a little more pricing power in the portfolio. And, and that, that, I think, is, um, is a good, good, good hedge for investors to, to, to think about. Jason, any thoughts in terms of areas of the market right now that might look a bit too rich? I know we've spoken about SPACs quite a bit in recent weeks. What can you share with us there? Well, on, on SPACs, I actually looked at uh, the latest data this morning for how many SPACs have been issued this year and how much money they've raised. I think the number was 263, raising $90 billion, which exceeds the numbers from all of last year. Um, so it's it's definitely an active market. Um, I'd, I'd worry about just, you know, you know the sustainability um, and whether this is ultimately going to be not a bubble, because we don't know until, you know, hindsight. But certainly there, there's elements that look frothy, and I think that applies to other pockets of the market. The key question is, are these broad-based and are these systemic so that if you get some weakness in the SPAC market, for example, or the IPO market, does it have broader implications for equities? And I think where there are pockets of frothiness or bubble-like activity, I think they're all fairly self-contained. When I look at the overall market, I think you know interest rates are, the, I think, the correct way to think about it because you're also going to be looking at what's the opportunity cost if you buy equities versus something else. The other key thing to look at is, you know, are you getting paid for the risk you're taking? And so that is, you know, the equity risk premium. And there's, you know, you have to sort of use a model to kind of derive it. But I think you know, most measures are going to say that relative to the past 25, 30 years, the equity risk premium for the S&P 500 is around sort of long-term average, you know, say around 3 3.5%. By comparison, during the dot-com bubble, like in, in 2000, you know, the market had a, an equity pre- risk premium of zero. So I think when I think of are you getting paid for the risk you're taking and given the earnings outlook, I feel like for equities overall, you are. But there's definitely some, you know, kind of concerns that – uh, but not broadly systemic. Um, but just on the, on the question of valuations, actually, you know, Henry, something to kind of follow up with you. You know, we know the data would show that valuations are not a good predictor for performance over the next, you know, one to two years. So, you know, valuations are rich. You could still have a very strong year for public market equities. But valuations do matter over a 10-year horizon. And thinking about, you know, what you're doing in the, in the private market space, given what valuations are, how does it sort of impact your thinking in terms of, taking advantage of opportunities, maybe shifting in different, you know, style sectors. Is it all kind of aligned to what you, you know, said in terms of the areas that you like in the market, or does it start to more fundamentally alter how you approach, um, you know, where you're going to try and take advantage of opportunities in the private markets? Yeah, great question. So a couple of things. One is we actually were fairly active last year in the public markets for the reason you you, you cited, given the dislocation. Um, you know, now the majority of our investing is uh, focused on the, the private markets. I would say that we are trying to really, and I read your stuff, and it's great. We're trying, you know, trying to follow some of that more, uh, some of the things you said. We've been deploying more outside the the U.S. and we've been um, we've been doing a little bit more in the cyclical area, particularly not as much in financials, but I think that's going to work given the steepness of the yield curve. But but for us, more in areas such as industrials and other areas maybe that have lagged lagged a bit. I think the big thing, Jason, that we think a lot about is the exit, right? Because to your point, it's five to ten years later. So that's we've spent a lot of time 
building out kind of in-house capabilities to understand that and what would have to happen from interest rates. But it does come down to interest rates. And then, you know, we're trying to find more companies where we feel like we can change the industry profile, either through consolidation or we think that we could sell a division so that we have something in our back pocket uh, to protect us just in case we're not uh, exactly to the pinpoint right on the, the interest rate forecast. So it's a little bit, you know, as each cycle is different, you know, in, in the last decade, we spent a lot of time focused on adding secular growth to the portfolio. And we still like that. We're, we're in what feels like an innovation bubble. And I use that in a, in a positive uh, context. But at the same time, there's been so much dispersion and so much left behind. And there are industries that are changing where, for us, I think a lot of times when people think about the private markets, they talk about the level. We, we, we spent a ton of time on the operational improvement and kind of strategically what can this business do in terms of taking market share. And what that would tell you is if you can get those right, it makes uh, it covers a lot of sins that you could do around the valuation standpoint. But I would say generally we're trying to be valuation disciplined. We track where we what we pay. Uh, we track correlations across our sectors, our sector exposures. A lot of things that are that people do in the public markets that hadn't been done in the private markets. It does make a difference because ultimately, you know, why do you focus on asset allocation? Why 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 do I? Because it works. And having some form of diversification even in the private markets makes a lot of sense, particularly given the amount of stimulus that you you cited earlier. No, no, I was just saying like to me it makes sense. Like, in private markets, especially if we're thinking about you know five or ten years, where there could be very different regimes over the next decade, you almost, if, if anything, getting your strategic asset allocation right is critical in that environment because that's going to drive a big part of your performance. Looking at the clock, I know 30 minutes goes fast. We're beginning to come to the end of our time together today. Henry, Jason, thank you very much for covering all of the ground that you have with our listeners, our clients. Maybe as a final question, Jason, what we can do is provide our guest, Henry, with the final word. So, Jason, I'll ask you, we've touched on risks consisting of policy, inflation, we've spoken about the pandemic. Anything else we haven't touched on that perhaps keeps you up at night and any other final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, two quick things. One thing that I've been a little bit concerned with recently, like very recently, is the recovery from the pandemic. You know, in the U.S., things are going well in terms of the vaccinations, cases are coming down. We're seeing almost the opposite in, in Europe where cases are rising, some of the, the lockdowns are you know, kind of rising. So the assumption that the global economy will fully heal later this year, maybe that's a little, there's some risk to that. And the consequences, if the U.S. fully recovers, but the rest of the world doesn't, what are the implications of almost a sort of a non-synchronous recovery? So I think that's something that you know, people haven't really thought about, and it could create some additional distortions and more behaviors in the markets. Uh, and then one final quick thing is just, with the Fed has a difficult job going ahead uh, you know, to kind of communicate what it intends to do. I think there's a decent chance, at least temporarily, the market, you know, or the Fed can make some sort of communication error, at least the, the market proceeds that way. Rates could rise, and certainly for a short period of time, it can cause some, some indigestion for the market. So that's, I think, a risk that's going to be kind of present for, for a while. Same question. Um, look, first, I just close by saying thank you. Uh, it's great to be. You guys are great partners, so thank you for the time. Um, you know, I thought Jason hit some some good points. I'll maybe add a couple. One is geopolitical tensions. I think the the U.S. and China are rival superpowers, and that has really important implications for supply chains, particularly as it relates to technology. And that the definition of what is national security is expanding beyond technology to include uh, things such as healthcare. Um, the second is, look, we saw this with, with Texas and we've seen this with the pandemic and other areas. Unfortunately, um, there's resiliency risk that you face 
uh, particularly with climate and uh, changes like that going on. So, you know, that's on the positive. That's probably a three trillion dollar per year opportunity. But unfortunately, there there are issues that are that are taking place that are causing people to reinvest in their infrastructure. And you know, we own over two hundred companies globally. So that's a huge focus. Can you have power? Can you have water? Are your employees protected? You know, the pandemic is really. You know, are, can they be tested? And so there's a lot of things, both from a defensive standpoint and an offensive standpoint, where um, I don't think we're having another pandemic, hopefully not in the next 12 months, but it has unveiled a lot of uh, potential dislocations. And given where interest rates are, to Jason's point, I think it's important to stay focused on. So again, thank you both for the time and, and to the listeners. Hopefully we, we hit some key areas of focus. Henry, Jason, thank you both very much. Very productive, wide-ranging conversation. And again, thank you for hitting on all of the timely and valuable items that you did for our listeners. Jason, Henry, thank you both again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Henry, for joining today. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Great to spend time with both of you. Again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Henry McVeigh, Head of the Global Macro and Asset Allocation Team with KKR. How Should I Be Positioned is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. You can also visit UBS.com forward slash podcasts for the entire podcast offering. From UBS Studios, I'm Ben Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.